X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. We are getting perilously close to 100 episodes of this thing. 100! I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, August 6th. Have you subscribed to The Local? We would really like it. Now, there is some discrepancy. Apple counts this, I believe, as the 100th episode. But we do five episodes a week. One time we had a little bonus episode. We didn't really count it as a full episode, but Apple counted it. So I think in your feed, this one's going to come up as episode 100. Emily Gilliland views the Friday episode as episode 100 because she thinks that one that was astray doesn't count. And I think she makes a pretty good point. So you decide. We're either at 99 episodes or 100. Either way, it's a lot of episodes. Thanks for listening and help us grow this thing. Today, back in the day, August 6th, 1945, World War II, Hiroshima, Japan, was devastated when the atomic bomb Little Boy was dropped by the United States B-29 Enola Gay. Around 70,000 people were killed instantly. Some tens of thousands died in subsequent years from burns and radiation poisoning. Days later, Fat Man was dropped on Nagasaki. And today, back in the day, August 6th, 1945, the Voting Rights Act was signed into law had several sections. Section 2 is a general provision that prohibits every state and local government from imposing any voting law and discrimination against racial or language minorities. Other provisions outlaw literacy tests and other devices that were historically used to disenfranchise racial minorities. Section 5 is the one that just got gutted in 2013 by John Roberts and the Supreme Court. Section 5 requires certain states and local governments with a history of discrimination in their voting practices to obtain federal clearance before implementing any changes to their voting laws to make sure they don't repress the vote. Section 4B has a coverage formula which determines which jurisdictions are subject to that clearance requirement. And back in 2013, the Supreme Court ruled by a 5-4 to margin that Section 4B was unconstitutional because the coverage formula was based on 40-year-old data and racism doesn't exist anymore. That's not how they put it, to be clear. But they did say that it was no longer responsive to current needs. The court didn't strike down Section 5, but without Section 4B, no jurisdiction is subject to Section 5 preclearance unless Congress enacts a new coverage formula. That case, by the way, was Shelby County versus Holder. Research, by the way, has shown that that coverage formula and the requirement of preclearance has substantially increased turnout among minorities even as far as to 2012, the year prior to the Supreme Court ruling. And since the Shelby decision, the jurisdictions which had been covered by that coverage formula have now drastically increased their rate of voter registration purges. Multiple states, especially southern states, have changed their election laws without needing federal approval and erected additional barriers to voting. After the death of John Lewis, advocates have renewed their call for reinstating the gutted portions of the Voting Rights Act. Republicans so far have opposed. We'll start with the quick six news headlines. We'll have some extra history for you today. We're going to our backyard in 1987 with B.T. Michaels from partner station KXRW. And we have an interview with local journalist Tuck Woodstock. Tuck provides a firsthand account of protests and media coverage. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The U.S. Department of Education is seeking to redirect $11 million away from Oregon public schools. In late June, the U.S. Department of Ed instituted a new rule defining how public schools could allocate coronavirus relief funds. Under that rule, public schools that spend CARES Act money on all students would have to share the money equally with private schools, or school districts could opt to support only low-income students. 
However, experts are now arguing that option is untenable, that it's almost impossible to provide any particular educational benefit only to low-income students. For instance, using the funds to, say, buy more disinfectant would arguably benefit more students than just the low-income students allowed. So that rule, which prompted lawsuits from several states, is now set to redirect $11 million away from Oregon's public schools. In a joint letter, Representatives Bonamici, DeFazio, Blumenauer, Senators Wyden and Merkley are condemning that new rule, arguing that it is unlawful, unfair, illogical, and impossible. They lay out the various legal issues of the rule, stating it misinterprets the language of the CARES Act and the Department of Ed illegally bypassed a 30-day waiting period. The lawmakers closed the letter by demanding the rule be rescinded. Big shortfalls are already expected for Oregon's budget, and big cuts are on the agenda for next Monday's special legislative session in Salem and on the Internet. As of Wednesday evening, we've had 19,979 cases since the pandemic began. That is perilously close to 20,000. We're averaging about 300 new cases per day. That's relatively steady on daily case count. About 9% of those diagnosed with the virus end up in the hospital. Less than 2% of the hospitalized cases have ended in death. Our death rate is currently lower than our neighboring states. Speaking of which, Governor Kate Brown told lawmakers on Tuesday it's in active conversations about possible travel restrictions to slow the spread. No specifics have been released yet. Hawaii has required people who travel to the islands to quarantine for 14 days. Massachusetts this month began requiring travelers to quarantine for two weeks if they can't produce a negative coronavirus test. And Alaska will roll out similar requirements for negative tests next week. While identified infections of Oregon have plateaued near our all-time highs, our case counts are still pretty low compared to other states, and officials would like to keep it that way. Big lumber company Frerer's Lumber got $5 million in a PPP loan, but it's having trouble finding new workers to take the money. On April 27th, Frerer's Lumber was approved for a $5 million PPP loan. It planned to spend all the money on payroll. They now are looking to hire 100 additional workers in order to operate at full capacity again. They're only operating at 60% now due to a number of workers resigning over the past months. The workers quit because they were worried about getting the coronavirus. During the first week of May, Ferrer's Lumber shut down. And shortly after, the company learned that three of its workers had contracted COVID-19 outside the workplace. Since reopening, the company has introduced a number of safety precautions, marking separation to ensure social distancing, providing PPE and cleaning supplies, installing plexiglass barriers, And they're hoping to hire skilled workers, including structural engineers, CNC operators, electricians, truck drivers, as well as unskilled workers. But so far, they haven't been able to fill all those spots. A reminder, the economy doesn't magically come back just because we say so. If we don't get the virus under control, a lot of people will want to avoid risk. A riot was declared Tuesday night at the police union building in North Portland. After gunshots were heard in the neighborhood and a dumpster fire was burning outside the building, police declared the protest a riot. Police say no tear gas was deployed, but several arrests were made. At one point, a pickup drove into the crowd, plowing over a motorcycle. Some protesters were reportedly starting fires. Other protesters were putting them out. Meanwhile, downtown, a few hundred people peacefully protested at the Justice Center. And in Justice Center news, City of Portland has fined the federal government $528,000 for the unlawful fence they built around the courthouse. Bureau of Transportation says the fine will go up by $48,000 every day, every 24 hours that the fence stays up. Citation says the fence is blocking a bike lane and creating a hazard to the public. Speaking of our public safety agencies, a firefighter went on a drunken racist rant while at a firefighter's convention in Nashville, reportedly calling the hotel attendant a very racist word. When the Nashville police came, he was drunk enough that he fell on the police. A reminder of what happens in Nashville might end up in the newspaper. Of course, now for the first time in history, the Bureau is under control of a black female fire commissioner. Joanne Hardesty, and its first black chief, Sarah Boone. And that firefighter kept his job. 
Sarah Boone says she's known the firefighter for years. She believes he's capable of redemption and that his positive example will help change the Bureau's culture. And Joanne Hardesty believes Boone made the right call. Governor Jay Inslee and Republican Lauren Culp had advanced to the November ballot in Washington. Jay Inslee didn't get nominated as a Democratic candidate for president. He is now seeking a third term as governor. The last Washington governor to serve three terms was Dan Evans. He left office in 1977. In Tuesday's primary, Inslee received 52 percent of the vote. That seems like barely a majority, but note there were over 35 candidates in that primary field. His official opponent in the November election, Lauren Culp, got 17 percent of the vote. Washington has a top two primary system. Lauren Culp has taken a number of controversial stances compared to Washington's political lean. He's announced gun control measures that voters passed in 2018. He's come out against mandatory masks, stating they infringe upon constitutional rights. Don't you know the 11th Amendment? Thou shalt not have to wear a mask to keep from passing along a communicable disease, even if the prohibition is in a private business where they get to decide whether you wear a shirt or not. Well, you got to read your Constitution pretty close. Latest head-to-head polling shows Inslee with a 29-point lead over Culp. Now that Culp has made it out of the primary, though, he might get some more support. That said, polling right now shows Joe Biden with a 34-point lead over Trump in Washington state. That's not very close. The primary race for lieutenant governor was also decided. U.S. Representative Denny Heck advanced to the general election with 27 percent of the vote, and he may run against another Democrat in November as state Senator Marco Elias currently leads Republican Ann Davison Sattler for that second position. The leading candidates for Denny Heck's vacant House seat are also Democrats. And in happy news, or at least sports and entertainment news, the Portland Trailblazers, and I probably should have covered this in yesterday's episode, but the Portland Trailblazers came up clutch against the Rockets in the hunt for the playoffs with a 110-102 victory over Houston. Carmelo Anthony, who'd been left out of the league for a while before joining our team, delivered a clinching three-pointer with under a minute left. Damian Lillard almost had a triple-double. The Blazers still have five games in their schedule, starting with games against the Nuggets and the L.A. Clippers, two good teams. And here's how this is shaping up for the playoffs, by the way. The Memphis Grizzlies, the team in eighth place, just had one of their best players suffer a season-ending injury. It's very sad. They haven't won a single game in this little NBA restart. What's the significance of them being the eighth best team? Well, eight teams from the West make the playoffs. The ninth place team will have a chance to play the eighth place team in a two-game play-in tournament. So if the Blazers are in ninth, they'll have to beat the Grizzlies or some other team twice out of two games. Or if the Blazers are in eighth place, they have to beat the ninth place team just one time out of two games. If the Blazers are in 10th or 11th place, they get to go back to their homes and watch the playoffs on television with the rest of us. Understand all that? Now, if people can follow that, we can certainly help our friends understand how a bill becomes a law and the basics of how the Ways and Means Committee works. In other news, I guess it's news, Drake's fancy painted 757 airplane has been parked at the PDX airport. I know what you're thinking. Nike, right? Well, people usually use the Hillsborough Airport for that. So that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. We have a look back to our backyard, celebrating the golden age of blues with the 1987 launch of the Rose City Blues Festival in Portland. Here's B.T. Michaels from Partner Station, KXRW. Hello and welcome to Our Backyard, brought to you by KXRW. I am your host, BT Michaels, and I hope you're ready to go back to the age of big hair, guitars, and denim, because we're going to 1987 and the inaugural performance of the Rose City Blues Festival. For those of you that may be unaware, Portland has a fantastic golden age of jazz period between the 1940s and the 1960s. Now this mainly sprung up in the Albina districts as well as the black predominant areas in the city. 
Between the 1960s and the 1980s, we hit this period in Portland's musical historiography where the emphasis is no longer on the blues and jazz scene, but is evolving with the rest of the country with rock and roll. And in support of that argument, we see bands from the 1980s such as Bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, ACDC, Def Leppard, all rising and dominating the stage. But in spite this rock and roll empire sweeping the nation, Portland wanted to find a way to get its listeners out of the rock and rolled back into the blues. The Rose City Blues Festival held its inaugural performance July 25th, 1987 at the Tom McCall Waterfront Park, where it's remained to this day. The festival was set in dual intentions. The first one was to link up with the Cascade Blues Association to help benefit the Burnside Community Council's project for the homeless. The following year and moving forward, the Oregon Food Share Program would become the main beneficiary for the festival. The second intent was to help local artists such as Tom McFarland and his blues band, who we heard the clip from earlier, get reestablished within the community and introduced to a brand new generation of blues lovers. And the festival became just that. In the words of Michael Burgess, this became a place full of smiling people, most of them stomping their feet and a few of them spilling their beers. It was a gig one prays for but never really expects. Since its beginnings, the festival has remained relatively untouched, minus a name change in 1991 to the Waterfront Blues Festival. In its three-decade run, the festival has raised over $10 million and over a 1,000 tons of food to support those facing hunger. The festival has survived through the love of our local heritage, as well as sponsors both past and present, but a large emphasis and a large push comes from musicians, both local and legendary. This list includes legendary performers like Buddy Guy and Taj Mahal, Mavis Staples, John Hyatt, James Cotton, Booker T and the MGs, and the list goes on and on. And of course, it's big first headliner John Lee Hooker. But more importantly, at least in my opinion, the stage also housed some of the more local legends who, in my mind and in their own right, will forever live on as Portland greats. This included bands such as the Lloyd-Jones Struggle, Norman Sylvester, uh, Bill Rhodes and the Party Kings, and we're going to hear a sampling from the Dave Stewart Trio and their song, It's Not Raining. It's Not Raining would become the first track on the compilation album that we put out the same year to commemorate the Rose City Blues Festival's inaugural performances. The album was recorded and mixed by Fritz Richmond, who had a rich history of being a notable engineer and is also coined with coming up with the band name The Lovin' Spoonful. All in all, this is just the tip of the iceberg for what the Rose City Blues Festival would become and what it would stand for in our local community and really on a global level.
if you've never attended the Waterfront Festival or have never really looked into it, I highly recommend it. And you can get more information at waterfrontbluesfest.com. They have a fantastic history section as well as upcoming events you can check out. As for me, I'm going to get back to spinning this album because you can never have too much of a good thing. Thank you again for tuning into Our Backyard. And like the Dave Stewart Trio says, remember, rain is only a state of mind. Don't you know it's not raining? Rain is just a state of mind. Portland has seen protests for 70 days. Headlines have included a wall of moms, naked, Athena, and federal agents occupying Portland. Have we lost sight of black lives along the way? Here's journalist Tuck Woodstock with their memories of the protests over these months, what's missing in the media coverage, and how to stay engaged towards change. You can follow Tuck on Twitter, at Tuck Woodstock. Tuck, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here. I have been following your Twitter feed. I'm so excited to talk to you. Have you been getting any sleep? I mean, lately, yeah. I've actually haven't been down at the protest for the last week or so. And so I've been following my, you know, colleagues along on Twitter, just as you've been following along on Twitter. Um, But for the first two months, not so much. Yeah. Yeah, so what what inspired you? You're an independent journalist. What inspired you to get down there and start covering the protests? Originally, it was because not that many people were doing that. Uh, And so the first few days, I, like everyone else, was following along on Twitter. And Mm -hmm. there were a few folks out there. And I realized that once those people went to bed, uh, it was, like, impossible to know what was going on. There was, like, Mm -hmm. this total vacuum of news. And um, so I just wanted to help people at home, you know, know what was going on, whether their loved ones were okay. Uh, So originally I reached out to the Mercury because they had folks out there who were going out every single night after working full eight-hour shifts during the day. So they had just been working like 16-hour days for a week, and I just wanted them to get to sleep sometime. Mm. Uh, So I just reached out to folks at the Mercury and said, hey, can I take a shift for you? And they said yes, and I, you know, thought I was just going to do it a few times, and then once I started doing that, I realized I wanted to be out there every day, so I stopped doing it for the Mercury and just started doing it for myself every single night. Yeah. From where I sit, it it seemed that the Mercury was sort of out in front covering the protests, and then other media outlets came along and started to cover cover the protests more... um, more each evening, I'll say. What do you feel like the news media has gotten right about the protests? I mean, it's hard to generalize the news media, right, because every outlet is different. So I feel like the um, local media has really stepped up in the last few weeks. Um, Oregon Public Broadcasting has done some really amazing work. Uh, They're the ones that broke that story about the unmarked vans. But... um, an example of like local media doing really well compared to national media would be uh, on June or sorry July 22nd when Ted Wheeler was tear gassed by feds and then went inside and then immediately afterwards uh, PPB threatened to use tear gas on that same crowd. Um, the national media 
all just ran with the first part of the story, which is that Ted Wheeler got tear gassed, and local media, um, Oregonian, OPC, uh, Willamette Week, Mercury, all pointed out the fact that, yes, Ted Wheeler got tear gassed, and then immediately afterwards, uh, his own police department was threatening to use tear gas on the same crowd. Mm. So part so part of getting it right is, is telling the full story, is being there from the beginning until the protests end. Is there anything else that you would like to see the media cover that they're not getting right at this moment? I just think in general, uh, the importance, the most important thing is to just keep your eye on the original message of the protest, which mm-hmm. is uh, defunding Portland police and Black Lives Matter in general. Uh, when national media came in, they focused a lot on feds and how this protest played into Donald Trump's reelection campaign. And as far as I know, like Portlanders have never, ever been thinking about it in this context, at least uh, protesters. I've never heard protesters talk about how the protests play into Donald Trump's reelection campaign. Like it's always been about, um, you know, defending police and uh, police brutality. And so, yes, I think one thing is, is being on the ground since day one so you understand the context and the other is uh, continuing to understand the context mm-hmm. um, and not trying to reframe it to fit a narrative that's convenient for you because it is convenient for national media to have it be a story about national politics but like it really it never has been that yeah so as someone who's been involved since the beginning how did the uh, just I want to be clear how did the tone change when the feds showed up uh, so something that people do tend to get wrong, media tends to get wrong, is that nothing changed when the feds showed up because the feds were here for two weeks before anyone realized they were here. Mm. So for two weeks, um, you know, the protesters and the journalists were down there facing off against federal officers every single night. Um, and it looked almost exactly the same as when they were facing off against CTB. They were using the same tactics, which are, you know, tear gas, crowd control munitions, bull rushing, uh, seemingly random arrests. Uh, these things were all exactly the same, and nothing really changed. The thing that changed was when OPB broke the story of protesters getting snatched into unmarked fans, uh, because then the folks who had not been going to the protests were suddenly horrified um, because they were learning what was going on for the first time. Like, uh, if you weren't following, you know, independent journalists on Twitter.com, like you, you didn't really know what was going on. And so when OPB broke that story more people locally and nationally uh, understood what was going on and then they started to come down to the protests and it grew from a couple hundred people to a couple thousand people and it grew from mostly young people to uh, folks of all ages who were showing up for the first time and so I think yeah what really changed was not so much when the feds showed up but when people realized that the feds were there and there was Mm. just this huge outpouring of support that hadn't been there before. And now they have left? Do we have confirmation that they are no longer here? Oh, no. It's a phased withdrawal. And so they're definitely still here. Um, They're not on the front lines of guarding the federal courthouse anymore. Um, But they're still around. And, uh, you know, there are four different uh, teams, as far as we know, that have been here. So there's the U.S. Marshals, uh, Federal Protective Service, ICE, and Customs and Border Patrol. And the U.S. Marshals and Federal Protective Services uh, are going to be here. Like, apparently, they're here all the time, and we just don't talk about it. Mm. Um, so it's ICE and Border Patrol that are allegedly, like, having a phase withdrawal. 
um, but there's still 130 uh, folks that are staying, which is a wild number because originally there were only 114 of them here, and so somehow the withdrawal ended up with more than there were originally. <laughs> um, so they're still around. They're just not on the front lines anymore. And so how have the protests evolved over the last few days after the reported sort of phase out of, of the federal uh, occupation? So we've seen two things. The Justice Center has largely gone back to the way it was uh, a month ago before the, the feds really got here and got a lot of attention, which is um, everything's pretty quiet. There's a lot of um, speeches. There's a lot of sort of... Um, internal debate among the protesters of like who who's there and why and what their tactics should be um there's not as much like direct action uh with or against police forces but at the same time um that has allowed energy to shift among the protesters from the justice center and the federal courthouse um to other parts of portland which we've seen throughout the protests there have been actions um multiple times at the police association building the union building there's been actions multiple times at the north portland um precinct is the word uh and so now we're seeing once again this focus turn to other buildings that um have not been as focused on so there's been events uh twice in the last week at the multnomah county sheriff office building um over on east burnside and i'm sure we'll continue to see that uh, kind of thing as well just stuff popping up throughout the city and focus turning back onto Portland Police and Multnomah County Sheriff. Mm. I have two questions about getting involved. Um, as, as folks are watching the news, as they're wanting to get involved, uh, where can folks get the most reliable information on the protests and how they can show up? How they can show up? Um, I mean, there's a website uh, off the top of my head. I want to say it's pdx-blm-events okay. <laughs> um, that, that aggregates all the events that are happening every day, which is great because it gives you um, the neighborhood events as well. So maybe you just want to, like, stand in your neighborhood and hold a sign. And, like, that's been happening in dozens of neighborhoods every single day for months. Um, so you can get involved that way. Um, there's also, you can, if you want to, you can show up at the Justice Center literally any night. There will always be people there. Uh, or you can keep an eye out uh, online. You can follow um, who announced it. It's kind of hard. There's not like a specific source on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but you can just like, you know, start following as many uh, news outlets and like random Antifa members as you can. And <laughs> eventually you'll start seeing uh, when the events are showing up on the east side. Uh, so, yeah, my recommendation for that kind of news is really just following as many independent journalists as you can because then you'll see them pop up and say, okay, it's 745 and I'm here in Laurelhurst Park, and then you can also run to Laurelhurst Park if you want to be there. Gotcha. Now, journalists have been putting, yourself included, have been putting your, your bodies on the line for this work. Journalists have been uh, been victims of this violence as well. How can journalists stay safe in in these protests? I mean, they can't. That's the thing. Like, yeah. journalists have been, multiple journalists have been maced in the eyes. Journalists have been shot with pepper balls, uh, flashbangs, crowd control munitions. Journalists have been arrested. Uh, at least four or five have been arrested. Um, this is still happening. They've been pushed around. You know, this has happened since the very beginnings of the protests. It's still happening now. 
there's uh, restraining orders uh, against Portland Police, Multnomah County Sheriff's, and the feds that say that they um, are exclusively not allowed to arrest, um, threaten to arrest or assault uh, journalists or legal observers, and it's still happening. So, like, we can't we can't stay safe. There's not really a way to do that. Mm. And having been involved in watching this over the last almost 70 days now, do you have hope that change can happen? So I've been thinking about this a lot, and, uh, you know, legislatively, there hasn't been that much change, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the PPP budget is down only a few percentage points. Um, there's been, you know, some dissolution of uh, specific task force that were deemed sort of the most problematic, but not too much else. Um, but what I do see changing is general Portland sentiment. I think mm-hmm. a lot of folks who would never consider themselves to be, you know, ACAB folks before, uh, not people who thought that all boys were bad. Um, these folks are really being radicalized, and the way they're being radicalized is by showing up on the front lines and experiencing police brutality firsthand. Because it's one thing to hear about police brutality, and it's another thing to experience it night after night after night, um, especially when you're not seeing any kind of provocation. Like, there's something really really moving about just like standing in the street and all of a sudden like experiencing like violent use of force by like your local law enforcement and so while i don't think change is coming like in this exact moment like we have elections coming up in november um the you know mayor is up for re-election in november and i think that um that election will be changed by the actions of the last couple months and what will happen leading up to that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens um, going forward from that election. And what are the hopes of the protesters right now? What are their demands? So back in June, we heard that demand for a $50 million immediate Mm -hmm. defunding of Portland police, which did not happen. And so uh, right now, depending on who you talk to, you could hear, you know, $50 million immediate defundment, but you could also just hear, like, abolishing Portland police or completely defunding Portland police. Um, There was a graphic the other day when Ted Wheeler was there that had a list of demands projected. Um, It's on my Twitter, some other Twitters. A lot of people are asking Ted Wheeler to resign as one of them. Defunding Portland police is one of them. Uh, Reinvesting that money into black communities is one. Um, and then feds actually coming, like leaving the city was one. I'm trying to think if there are any others. I mean, there's no like meeting where every single protester sits down and like votes on the list of demands, sure. but um, abolishing CPB and like ending violence against black Portlanders by police is definitely at the top of the list. And are there any meetings happening between protest organizers and the city of Portland or other policymakers? I have not heard any. Um, you know, in the last mm-hmm. almost two months, there were a couple at the very, very, very beginning. But the thing is, this is not really um, a movement that has leaders. <laughs> and so there are people that sort of self-style as leaders um, that were meeting at the beginning. But there is no leader of these protests. It's a leaderless movement. Black Lives Matter has always been, um, you know, like a sort of horizontal organization. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when you hear someone call themselves like a leader of these protests, like more often or not, that's... Um, more like someone trying to get clout than it is like actually accurate. Um, so it becomes hard to um, have folks meet the city council. Yeah. Tuck, how can our listeners best support your work? <sighs> I mean, uh, there's a spreadsheet uh, 
pdxpresscorps.com um, that has the payment information of all of the independent journalists that have been out there. Um, a lot of folks have received a lot less support than I have. Um, so, you know, just follow folks on Twitter and make donations to the people who you feel like are doing good work on the ground. But personally, like, another thing that helps my work is just, you know, community support in general. So, like, showing up for uh, bail funds, for jail support funds, um, you know, donating to the Portland Mercury, who is, like, I've been freelancing for on and off, um, donating to other local journalism uh, organizations that you like, uh, you know, providing direct aid for protesters, donating to medics, um, or just working towards uh, the goals of the protesters, like, all of those things are helpful. Excellent. And Tuck, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, it's at Tuck Woodstock. Excellent. Tuck, thank you so much for being with us this morning and giving your perspectives. Thank you for having me. Again, that's Tuck Woodstock, independent journalist and reporting on the protest downtown. Thanks to BT and Tuck for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local. Your hometown in about 30 minutes. We've done this about 100 times. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.